Revelation chapter 3, we've been in a series going through the uh, seven churches and studying uh, Jesus' instructions to these churches, Jesus' letters to these churches, and looking at them through the lens of what God would have us as a church plant uh, look like, as these are written to assess, to evaluate, to uh, critique, to commend these seven churches. Well, the church that we come to this evening is not going to be one that's going to be kind of the target of who we want to be, but we can still learn a lot from Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. But I wonder if you've ever been to Universal Studios or uh, Warner Brothers or any place like that and been on a tour of the, the lot, the studio lot there. I remember when Amanda and I were in California, she took me for my birthday and we went to Warner Brothers Studios and we got to go on the the studio tour where they, where they put you on a golf cart and you drive around and, and you're just looking at everybody going, are you famous? Are you famous? Are you famous? Are you famous? I don't think we saw anybody famous there, but we did see a lot of the sets that we recognize from uh, the TV shows that we've watched or the movies that we've watched or, or whatnot. And, and one of the sets I remember Amanda was excited to see was the set of Gilmore Girls, the, like, the gazebo in the middle of it and everything else. And, and we drove by there and we saw that and then we got to see some other uh, sets as well and, and the sound stages. And it was cool, and yet at the same time, it kind of robs some of the magic from the, the movies and the TV shows that we would watch. Because now all of a sudden you know in your mind, okay, this is just a front, this is just a facade. And yes, I got that. Yes, I understand that. Yes, I know that it was all a facade. But then it's, it's one thing to, to know that and, and another thing to experience it, to go there and actually see, oh, that, that's, that's just a, that's a fake building. That's a fake tree. That's a fake everything. It's... It looks like something that should have life to it and be real, but then the reality is it's just not. Superficiality, right? It's not anything that anyone likes or wants. I would imagine none of you would think to yourself, you know what, I need more superficial friends in my life. I need, when I'm hurting, when I'm walking through a trial, when I'm walking through a valley, I need to call the person that flakes out on me all the time. They're the person that I want in my life. You don't think that, do you? And yet a lot of times the superficial friends are the ones that at least in, in words are the ones telling you that they'll be there and that they're there for you and how much they love you and how much they care about you and all that. But then when push comes to shove, you find out that it's just, it's just a shadow. It's just a mirage, their commitment to you. Well, that was the problem with this church. The commitment that they were professing, the love for Jesus that they said that they had ended up simply being a mirage, simply being a, a, a fraudulent shell of a reality that showed that they really weren't committed at all. Take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 3 if you're not there. This is written to the church in Sardis. I'm going to read it and then we'll talk about the city, the church a little bit, and then we'll get into the text. Jesus said this, And to the church, or the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Sardis, what do we know about Sardis? It's modern day Sart in Turkey. You can still go there today. You can still see some of the ruins. It's pictured up there. Uh, it was founded around 1200 BC. So this is an ancient city. In fact, it was the ancient capital of the Lydian Empire. There was a, an empire that was known as Lydia, and this was the capital city. Sardis was the capital city of the entire Lydian Empire there. It was situated, and this is important for the, the story of the history of Sardis, but also for what we read in this letter. Sardis was situated on this plateau surrounded by these cliffs. So the, there were, on, on three sides of the city, 1,500-foot sheer cliffs that just dropped straight down, which left one point of entry to the city. So that meant that Sardis was uh, uh, an incredibly easily defended city. There was only one place that, that troops could come. So as long as Sardis and the Sardinian people had their eyes on that one location, they didn't really have to worry about anything else, or so they thought. Sardis was also known as potentially the place where the minting of coins was first uh, created, first started, first begun. And it was also uh, known for its nearby hot springs, which were thought to be life-giving, which is a little ironic when we look at what happens to this church in this text. But I mentioned the plateau because here's, here's what happens. So Cyrus, the Persian, was challenged by the people of Sardis, and they kind of bowed up against Cyrus, thinking to themselves, we don't have to worry about him. Look at our city. Our city is impregnable. No one can attack us where we are. We've got 1,500-foot cliffs all over the place, one point of entry. Bring it, Cyrus. What do you have? Well, Cyrus said, okay. So Cyrus came, and Cyrus laid siege to the city. Well, the, the region of Sardis was rich in its fertile soil, so they weren't worried about losing food or water. They could outlast any siege. And so they were fine, and they thought, you know what? Cyrus, where he positioned himself, which was towards the base of one of these cliffs, they thought he's the one in trouble because we've got him cornered in these rocks. Well, the Sardinians went ahead and, and slumbered peacefully. Well, while the Sardinians slumbered, Cyrus sent his army up the 1,500-foot cliffs one by one. And because they were unwatched, because they were unguarded, because the city of Sardis had been lulled into a sense of false security, they didn't know what happened to them until it was too late. They woke up, and the Persians were there, and the city fell. History would repeat itself 400 years later when Antiochus the Great did the same thing. So this is a city that had a lot of advantages, a lot of good things about it. But it was a city that was lulled into a state of, of false security, thinking that they were okay, that caused them to let their guard down and expose themselves to great danger. And I think the history of the city reflects the history of the church in a lot of ways. What do we know about the church? Well, we know not much about the church. This is a repeating theme in this series. We don't know a lot about these churches other than a few of them, but most of them we don't know. Again, we think these were churches that Paul probably planted while he was on his missionary journeys around Ephesus because they're all in that same region there in Asia Minor. But we don't know. We don't know much beyond what we find out in this letter that Jesus writes to the church in Sardis. And unfortunately, it's not a great letter. He begins there in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, the pastor of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God. Wait a minute. Seven spirits. I thought there was one spirit. What is this a reference to? Well, it's a, a reference to the spirit. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a couple passages that deal with this. Zechariah 4 is one that deals with it. Uh, but I think more explicitly in, in Isaiah chapter 11, we read about the seven spirits. Here it is. It says this. The Spirit of the Lord, okay, 
shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Okay, so if we count those out, you've got the spirit of the Lord. One, the spirit of wisdom. Two, the spirit of understanding. Three, the spirit of counsel. Four, the spirit of might. Five, the spirit of knowledge. Six, and the spirit of the Lord is, or the fear of the Lord is seven. Seven different ways to describe the spirit, the second, or the third member, rather, of the Trinity. And so Jesus is the one that's depicted here as holding the seven spirits. It was a, a way that he was referencing the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Now, why would he introduce this letter referencing the Holy Spirit? It's possible that this was a reference to the fact that the Spirit was known as the, the life-giving force, right? Remember when God created Adam, what did he do to, create, to, to give life to Adam? What does Genesis say? He breathed life into Adam. It's the word ruach in the, the Hebrew, which is the word, the same word that we get spirit from. And so the spirit is, is thought in Jewish thought and belief to be the life-giving force. And so here you have a church that is in need of life. And that's what Jesus is offering them in the opening of this letter. He is the one that holds the, the spirit. And we remember from John, in fact, we're getting into it in our daily Bible reading, that the spirit was sent by the father through the son. And so Jesus here is saying, I have the spirit. I have what you need. And he's also reestablishing and reminding him of the, them of the authority of him over these churches. Because he also holds the seven stars, these seven pastors. He is the chief shepherd to them being his under shepherds. Then he gets to the confrontation. Jesus does not have much that's good to say about what's going on in Sardis. So he starts off right off the bat with what's going wrong. He says, I know your works. In the past, that's been a good thing. He's commended churches for their works and what they've done well, but not this time. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In the Greek, it's the, the conjunction is the word for and there. In other words, he's saying, you have the reputation of being alive and the reality is you're dead. He's stressing that, that there's, there's this superficiality about this church. Anything that looks alive is just a mirage. It's just a facade. It doesn't have the genuine elements. You have the reputation. Reputation, some of your Bibles may say name. It's from the Greek word that means name. And it's the word that even at this time was used in reference to nominal Christians. Those that would profess Christ, but they were more, maybe we, we would call them cultural Christians in this area. If you grew up in Texas or you've met anyone else in the state of Texas and you said, hey, do you go to church? You've probably gotten the answer from a lot of them. Yeah, I go to church. It's a cultural thing. It's a, a thing that you just grow up doing. But there's a difference between growing up going to church and being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, isn't there? And so this is Jesus confronting the church, telling them, hey, you know what? Your, your church is mostly just nominal Christians. You've got this reputation it's all about the exterior, but not about the internal. All about the external, not about the internal. He says, you have a reputation. You have a name. People look at you and they think that you're a good church. They think that you're alive, but you're dead. The signs of life that they showed weren't indicative of true life. And we see this. In fact, we saw this from Jesus in his parables. Remember the first parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13? The parable of the sower, right? Where the sower goes out and he, he scatters seed as, as they would do at that time to, to sow the seed. And, and Jesus talks about what happens to the seed. Some fell on the, the rocky path on the sidewalk and the birds come down and take it away right away. Right? It's gone. But then there's two other soils here. One is the, the shallow soil. 
and, and the, the seed falls in that, the rocky soil, and, and it says that, that there's a sign of life there. That it initially shows some promise. But then what happens? Well, Jesus said this. It said, immediately they sprang up, and since they had no depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. They had no root, and they withered away. So when the trials, when the suffering, when the pain, when the difficulties of being a follower of Jesus creeps up, these people, they have a sign of life in the, at the outset. You think, oh, maybe they get it. But then they, they fall away. Because when trials come, they are met with disappointment and discouragement. And they say, this isn't what I signed up for. And they look for something else. And then there's the, the third soil. The third soil is the thorny soil. And it says there that there's, again, signs of life. But what happens to the signs of life in the thorny soil? And we find out through the interpretation that these are the cares of the world. I think of John, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 here, that, that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, these things crowd out the life that's shown there by that seed, and it's snuffed out. That initial life is eventually proven to be false signs of life. But then there's the fourth soil, and that's the genuine life. That's where the roots take deep hold in the soil, and it grows up and it bears fruit. Jesus was saying that this church was in one of those first two soils. At least a lot of them were. There were signs that looked like they were alive. You've got a reputation of being alive, but the reality is you are dead. The true nature of your inward state is one of death. It's possible this church was living on the coattails of a former vitality. That at one point in time, this church had been on fire. But change takes place and we see the churches drift. We've seen that. You may be even able to think of churches in your own life or churches around the area that you can think of and go, they, at one point they were so strong and, and, and yet they've drifted so far. This church had a reputation that didn't match their reality. It was like those facades at Warner Brothers. When I remember going down some of the streets. They were like, well, this is our New York street and this is our Western street and this is our you know, Tokyo street over here. And you looked down them and it looked like you were there. You could walk down the New York City street and feel like you're in New York City looking around, but then all of a sudden you remember these are just facades. There's no depth. If you open any of those doors, it, it's just the rest of the Warner Brothers lot behind it. There's no substance to it. There's no reality to it. Jesus goes on, he says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What a terrifying thought. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This church, they were going through the motions enough to fool the culture, but not to fool Jesus. Or maybe they were going through the motions so much so that they thought their good works would earn them favor with God. That they thought, man, I'm checking the box. If I show up at church, I'm good. Or if I, if I pick up my Bible occasionally, I'm good. Or if I tell my neighbor I'm a Christian, I'm good. And Jesus says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's lacking something. Recall in Daniel chapter 5, you've got a king there named Belshazzar. And you remember this king was celebrating and flaunting his glory over the God of Israel. And he called for the vessels of the temple. You remember he had a party and he called for the vessels of the temple. And he began to drink wine and alcohol from these vessels and toast the gods of silver and wood and gold. You remember the scene, don't you? And all of a sudden, his face goes white because he sees a hand show up and start writing on the wall. Nobody can interpret the writing. He calls for Daniel. Eventually, Daniel comes in and he says, okay, I've got the message, king, but you're not going to like it. It says this. It says, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. You don't measure up. You are lacking. 
God's assessment of you is what matters. Your reputation, not from the world. This is Belshazzar, one of the most powerful kings in the known world at the time. That reputation mattered nothing. The reputation of him with God mattered everything. He says, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. As we think of being a church that honors Christ, we don't want to be a church who has a reputation of being alive only to be a church that is in reality dead. We want to be a a church that keeps the right reputation in view. And that's our first point tonight. It's this, remember the reputation that matters. Remember the reputation that matters. Having a great spiritual reputation is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing if somebody thinks, man, that person's really spiritual. As long as there's substance to it, right? As long as it's not just superficial, there's got to be meat to it. And for this church, the fruit of their reputation was devoid of the genuine root of faith in Jesus. That's why nothing this church did was, was going to be good enough in the eyes of Christ because it was all in their own power. They were all doing it for the acclaim and the applause of men. They were not doing it for their reputation with the Lord. John 15, again, in our daily Bible reading, we're about to get into that. John 15 is going to talk about abiding in Christ and obeying the commandments of God. The only way that we can please the Lord and and, and obey what God commands us to do is if we are abiding in the vine, if we are connected to, to Christ. This church was drifted, had become disconnected. Caring about the reputation that matters. Perhaps this month, this rings more true for us than than other months, doesn't it? We see corporations and and, and other things bowing the knee to the LGBTQ agenda all over the place. But here's the tragic thing, Christians. We're starting to see churches and Christian, professing Christians do the same thing. Last week, a, a news story broke about a TV show that's been popular amongst the church called The Chosen. And a story broke that they had found on site or been captured on site that there was a pride flag on one of the cameras that was shooting some behind-the-scenes footage for The Chosen. And rightly so, it drew a response from the, the, the pastoral community as, as some began to question that and say, hey, what is this about? And rather than repenting from that and saying, you know what, we were wrong and we shouldn't have done that and that was a mistake, they, they came to the defense of the person that had the pride flag taped to their camera. And initially the answer was this, oh, well, you know, we, j- we have people that aren't necessarily believers on our set. But it didn't stop there. It went further and some of the actors released some quotes like this one. This is from the one who plays Thaddeus. And he said this, anyone who is going to go at one of our family members for something like this, you see how he's trivializing sin here, don't you? Something like this. Like what? Like perverting God's plan for marriage between a man and a woman. Anyone who's going to go after one of our family members for something like this is no fan of ours. They can close the door on the way out. Love one another as I have loved you. We stand with our brother. And then they had a rainbow flag heart emoji after that statement. By the way, the guy who plays John, the Apostle John, retweeted that tweet. And then, um, it wasn't just him. Here comes the guy who plays little James. He said this, uh, my brother, G. Cairo 06, isn't the only one who stands by the LGBTQ members of our chosen family. Get out of here with your hate, homophobia, and ignorance, not very Jesus of you. These are professing Christians who care far more about their reputation with the world than they care about their reputation with God. 
Christians, we have to be discerning. We have to be careful. We have to make sure that, that we're not blurring lines. There are clear, hard, fast doctrinal lines that we need to hold fast to that are non-negotiables for us. In verse 4, these are those that Jesus says in verse 4, you have some who have not soiled their garments. These are those that have soiled their garments. Galatians 6, 7 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. So when Christians and churches throw verses out of context and tell you that we need to love one another as Christ has loved us, and, and they throw that and they say, that's not very Jesus of you. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. If I can just put it frankly and bluntly, who cares if we win the acclaim of the world and forfeit the reputation with God? Having a good name with God begins where? It begins through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin in our righteousness. Our righteousness is laid down at the foot of the cross because it is filthy rags. We need the righteousness of Jesus. That's our reputation with God, is Christ's full righteousness. And he died for the forgiveness of sin, not its, its, its condoning. Not it's minimizing, not it's, it's celebration. He died so that our sins might be forgiven and paid for. And we have to make sure, church, that, that our reputation begins with understanding that he is our Savior, that we have put our full trust in him as our Lord and our Savior. John 15, we have to be abiding in Christ. That's where our reputation comes from. And so my question to you, church, is are you connected to the vine that is Jesus? Do you seek to live your life by the, this, this book here? Its commandments, in its directions, no matter how unpopular that might be or unwelcome that might be in the world around us. Are you living to make your life a perpetual platform to exalt Jesus? That's one of the things that we want to make sure that we're doing at this church is that we are a Christ-exalting church. That's every facet of our lives. And the world's going to hate that. Jesus said they're going to hate it. That's okay. That's okay. He goes on, though, for the correction. The church was not just blasted and left for dead. There's still some hope because God is a God of grace. And thank God He is, right? Verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Again, chilling words from Jesus for anyone who has ears to hear. Wake up. This church needed the wake-up call. That's what he says, literally. Wake up. Be alert. Stand at the ready. Be watchful. It's a word that occurs in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. There's the word. Be alert. Wake up. Why? Because your adversary, you've got an enemy. You've got one standing against you. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I've always loved the, the contrast there. It's almost like an oxymoron. If you've ever, ever seen a lion prowling, it's typically not doing what? Roaring. Because it's trying to stalk its prey. But Peter's reminding us that our adversary is plain to us if we will look around. 
he's prowling. Yeah, he's after us, but he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Wake up, church, is what Jesus is saying to this church. The spiritual sloth that had overtaken this congregation had to be dealt with. And remember the history of Sardis. They were lulled literally to sleep while they were being attacked by their enemies. And church, if we're not careful, the the world will seep into us while we're being lulled to sleep ourselves. If we think that we're comfortable because we live in a particular region of the country or a particular area, or if we think we're comfortable because we've got a particular brand of Christianity or doctrinal statement, that's exactly where the enemy wants us. Is growing comfortable and growing complacent. Instead, y'all, we need to have every watchtower of our spiritual lives manned at all times. Strengthen what remains, he says, and is about to die. Not all was lost. There were some genuine saints amongst the congregation. And he's telling them, he's like, you guys, genuine Christians and believers here, strengthen those that are with you. Encourage them, build them up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. It's like when you've got a fire and the embers are dying out on the fire and you blow life back into that fire and it reignites. The embers were still there with this church, but they were dying off and dying off quickly. I'm glad I'm back in Texas because I can talk about the Alamo and people understand and track with me with, with what I'm talking about. During the siege of the Alamo, I think one of the things that was most inspiring to me when I was reading about its history and studying it and everything else was the fact that every night, you know what the, the, the forces did that were inside the Alamo? You know what they would do? When the shelling would stop and they would get a brief, brief reprieve, they wouldn't kick their feet up. They would go out and they would inspect the walls. And they would look for any weak points in the walls. And they would do everything they could. They would use whatever resources that they had there to shore up the the weak points in the walls. They would strengthen those points. They knew they were outnumbered and outgunned. But they knew how important those walls were. And as long as they were able to, they were going to strengthen the walls. The faithful who remained at Sardis needed to strengthen the walls of the church there. You and I, when we think about our walks with Jesus, we need to make sure that we are strengthening the walls and the perimeters of our lives. Jesus said, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember, keep, repent. Remember what you've received and heard, the the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Remember the gospel. Remember the, the truth that you need to hold fast to. And then he says, from there, keep it. Persist in it. Obey it. Put it into action. Apply it to your lives. This is one of the Jesus' famous or favorite words for obedience. He says in John 8, 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. John 14, 23, if you love me, you will keep my word. So he's saying, remember the truth. Keep it. Apply it. Put it into action. And, and then the word that showed up so many times before in our letters, repent. Repent, swift, decisive change in mindset and behavior. Stop off what you're doing, do an about face, and go in the opposite direction. This is the call. It's a five-part plan, five-step plan. If you like steps and and, and five-step plans, here you go. Jesus gives us one. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what you've heard, keep it, and repent. That's the remedy for this church's severe sickness that they have. but it was all about realizing where their weaknesses were and strengthening those weaknesses, shoring up those weaknesses. 
mentioned that's something that we got to be sure that we're doing too, individually and corporately. Second point tonight is that shore up your spiritual weaknesses. Shore up, which just means to strengthen. Strengthen your spiritual weaknesses. You know what superficial spirituality doesn't care about? You know what a church that's all show and no dough doesn't care about? Doesn't care about its weaknesses. Social media. The selfie world. How many selfies are taken out there to highlight our weaknesses? None. What are selfies meant to do? Hide your weaknesses. Right? Hide them. You, you, you take the, the, the angle, I don't know, I'm horrible at them, right? But you take the angle that makes you look the best because you don't want to think about your weaknesses and you don't want anyone else to think that you have any weaknesses. Let me ask you a question. Where are you the weakest in your faith with Christ, in your walk with Christ? Some areas for us to watch in this regard. How, how about prayer? Here's an important area for us to make sure that, that we are strengthening the walls in our lives. Time in the Word. We have the DBR here because we value it, but not just so that you can check a box and say, hey, I've done it, but because we believe that God's Word is life-giving. We believe what it says about it in Psalm 119. We believe what it says about it in Psalm 19. We believe when the psalmist says it's, it's more to be desired than honey, it's more, or sweeter than honey, more to be desired than, than gold, that that's true. Time of the word. How about just our words, our own words as Christians? This can be an area where maybe those first two are, are somewhat in place, but, but maybe you're just struggling with the words that are coming out of your mouth. Things that you're talking about. Discipleship. Are you seeking to grow with other Christians and seeking to help other Christians grow? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God gives us those lists in the Scripture so that they can become spiritual inventory lists for us. Not just so that we can create children's songs to sing about Him, right? but so that we can examine our lives and hold our lives up to these lists to say, how am I doing in these areas? Do I see these things in my life? Where am I weakest in these areas? Man, I want to strengthen that. I want to shore that up. My guess is you go and get a physical, hopefully more often than I do. But my guess is that at that physical, you don't want the doctor just to look at you. Maybe you do want them to just look at you and be truthful about this. But my guess is you don't want the doctor to walk in, give you a once-over and be like, you're good, and walk away, right? In fact, you don't want the doctor to just sit down on, in that room with you and tell you, you know what, this is good, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good. All right, I'll see you later. Part of the reason why we go to get a physical, right, is so that we can find out what are, what are the, 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 the weaknesses, the weak points in my health. What do I need to address? What do I need to cut out of my life? What do I need to increase in my life? And, and while that's not always fun to hear, we need to hear that because that's what keeps us healthy. Hearing about all the good things that are going on in our life, that doesn't keep us healthy. It's finding out where the weak points are spiritually and physically that cause us to be a physically healthy person. It's the same thing spiritually. Church, we can't get so caught up in the fact that, 
that so-and-so thinks that this is a good church or anything else that we neglect to, to always be watching, always be evaluating, always be, be paying attention to do we have any weak points and where can we shore those up so that we make sure that we're not lulled into the same state of slumber that this church was in their spiritual superficiality. Once you've identified these areas of weakness, we go to work on them. For instance, prayer. What resources are you availing yourselves of? There's great books on prayer. The Power of Prayer by R.A. Toria, Praying Life by Paul Miller. Those are awesome books on, on how to just increase our prayer lives and what we should be praying for. Your time in the Word. Right? If that's an, an area of weakness for you, you're not as consistent in the Bible. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this daily Bible podcast is to just help with that as well with you. And why we provide the daily Bible reading plan to, to help you in your time of the Word. There's apps out there, the Dwell Audio Bible app. You can get that and you can listen to the Bible when you're in your car. If you've got a commute, you've got an opportunity to put the Word of God in your mind and in your heart, listening to the Word of God. Discipleship. They're not started yet, so this isn't fair, but we're going to have community groups. Community groups are going to be places and platforms for you to grow in relationship with other believers and to, to see them love Jesus more and to have them ensure that, that you love Jesus more as well. One-on-one discipleship. Encourage, engage with people. Fruit of the Spirit, what are you doing there? Maybe go to somebody who loves you, who knows you better than anyone else and say, hey, where do you think I'm lacking in the fruit of the Spirit? Get some accountability in your life in that. All of these are useful resources to us, but at the end of the day, it ultimately comes down to discipline, right? That discipline that causes us to love Jesus more than anything else on this earth. Shoring up our spiritual weaknesses. You know, a lot of this has to do with something called the spiritual disciplines. There's a book called Habits of Grace that we're reading through as a staff right now together. It's by David Mathis. Habits of Grace. And he says in here of these spiritual disciplines, and much of what I was just encouraging us to do, he says this. He says, I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it, and so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. Did you catch that? We're being asked and, and said, hey, flip the switch. That's our responsibility. We flip the switch, but who provides the electricity? Grayson County Co-op Electric or whoever I'm with over there. They provide the electricity, right? That's the idea with spiritual disciplines. We pick up our Bibles and we read the Bibles, but, but it's the grace of God that takes the word of God and, and, and applies it to our life and begins to transform us and make us more like Jesus. The warning. If you will not wake up, he says, if you won't do this, if you won't remember, keep and repent, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It seems the judgment he was referring to was the return of Christ. Matthew 17, 2, he was transfigured before them. That's not the verse that I was looking for. I was looking for Matthew 24, 43. Don't mind that. That'll come in later. Matthew 24, 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house, let his house be broken into. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus, I will come like a thief, and you will not know. Again, the history of Sardis. The invading forces came like thieves in the night, and they were destructive. So stay alert, be awake, always be strengthening our weak points as followers of Jesus. 
The commendation, though, verse 4. He says, yet, in spite of all that, you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. People have not soiled their garments. Uh, coming from South, Southern California, you know what they, they really don't care much about out there? What you wear to church. I mean, there's the modesty element there, but, I mean, people are showing up in flip-flops and, and Hawaiian shirts and, and, and shorts and everything else there. It, it, there's not a lot of attention given to that. Now, I grew up out here, and I went to some churches in my time out here where if you weren't in coat and tie, you, you got a, a, a side eye from people. In fact, we've been visiting some churches on Sunday mornings around here, and, and you walk up to some, and you can tell the, the Southern Baptist churches when you walk up to them because they've got greeters that are out front in their coat and tie. Now, they're Texanized. They've got the hat on and the boots on, and they'll shake your hand and, and, and welcome you as you walk in, but they're dressed up because they're going to church. In fact, I remember there was a, a sweet lady in Missouri who was in our church, and she always would wear hats to church every week. And I, I remember going up to her one week, and I said, Estella, why do you always look so nice at church? And she said, because my, when my mama raised me, she raised me to think when I go to church, I'm going to see the king, and I want to look my best for the king. She thought that was a cool mindset. But she cared about her appearance for God. She wanted it to be clean. That, that was what was going on at this time, too. In fact, even in pagan temples, if you walked in with dirty garments, they kicked you out because you were unworthy to worship. And so when Jesus says, you have some who have not soiled their garments, he's saying, you have some genuine believers there, and they will walk with me in white. They'd remain faithful to Jesus, and they were going to have fellowship with Jesus as a result. They were going to walk with him in white. That's that Matthew 17 uh, passage there, that transfiguration, that they were going to be like Jesus. Jesus became white as light. Or Mark 16, when they walk into the tomb, there's the dazzling whiteness, even just of the angelic beings that are there because they had been and come from the presence of God. Or Revelation 15, 6, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen. Again, why? Because they had been with the Lord. Revelation 19, there's going to be the armies of heaven arrayed in white, fine linen coming with him. He said there's some that are like that. He says of them, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white, verse 5. White garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There's this threefold promise of reward. The first is that they're going to be dressed in white like Christ is. It's a picture of our being fully righteous, fully glorified, and with him. The second is, he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And the third is, I will confess his name before the father. Uh, really quick, on the, the I will never blot his name out of the book of life. There are some that will point to that and go, see, you can lose your salvation because your name can be blotted out of the book of life. But can I ask you to read what that says? It doesn't say that. It says actually the exact opposite. What does Jesus say to the one who conquers? Who conquers? Let me ask, let's start there. Who conquers, right? Those who have put their faith and trust in, in Jesus. The victory is won in Christ, right? He is our victory. He is our righteousness. We are righteous in Christ. We conquer through Christ, in Christ. So to the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will what? I will blank blot out his name from the book of life. I will, I will never blot his name out from the book of life. So this is not at all teaching that your name could be blot out from the book of life. This is teaching the exact opposite. Because we don't conquer in our own strength. We conquer in Christ's strength, in his merit. And he's the one that said it's finished on the cross. And so now we can be sure that he's never going to blot our name out of the book of life. That's the second reward that, that we have there. But then finally, and this is amazing, the third promise, I will confess his name before my father and his angels. 
I will confess his name before my father and his angels. Luke 12, 8 says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. A commitment and willingness to hold fast to Jesus here and now will result in his willingness to claim us before the father and his angels. Third and final point tonight is this. Live to hear Christ confess your name. Live here and now to hear Christ confess your name then and there. To hear him say, Dan is mine. Abram is mine. Wendy is mine. Lene is mine. Amanda is mine. The Savior of the universe, the promise here in Revelation, do we get that church in Revelation 3 that he's going to confess your name and say they're mine before the Father and the angels? I want that. You want that? Can we use that idea to help fuel our perseverance and endurance here? Because it's easier to, con- to conform to the world. It's easier to be a superficial church. It's easier to be a church that's more concerned about our reputation with the world than our reputation with God. But if we do that, we're going to forfeit hearing him say, they're mine. The reward gained here from falling away from Jesus will never be worth the ultimate cost of sacrificing this opportunity to hear him then call us and confess our name before the Father. Live to hear Jesus confess your name. If I can just speak to us as we wrap up here, one of the greatest dangers, I think, of superficial spirituality, like we see in this church here, is it can be caused by self-deception. In other words, it can be caused by somebody who thinks that they're 100% fine with God. Because I was born into the church. I've always gone to church. I was baptized. I, I, I read my Bible all the time. I went to Awana when I was growing up and I memorized scripture verses. I'm a good person. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my family. I've raised a good family. My kids are obedient. I, I Yes, I, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I don't celebrate Pride Month. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Those things are all fine and well, and yet none of them can save you. Being a good person, there's a lot of good people in hell. There's a lot of good people in hell. What will save you and distinguish genuine life from superficial life is getting to the place where you recognize your sin. That God is 100% holy, perfect, and you are a sinner. That you've fallen short. And that that sin has alienated you from God. And in other words, it's separated you from God. And that separation is in an infinite chasm between you and God. And that there's nothing that you can do to close that gap. You can't be good enough to close that gap. You can't go to church enough times to close that gap. You can't be baptized enough times to close that gap. You can't walk an aisle or pray a prayer or raise a hand enough times to close that gap. There's only one thing that closes that gap. And that is putting your trust and faith in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross for your sins 100% fully and completely. 
repenting, repenting from self-righteousness, turning from trust in yourself to be a good enough person, turning from trust in in what you've done to to merit God's favor and saying, "I, I can't do it. I need you, Jesus. Jesus, I fully trust that you died on the cross to forgive my sins and rose from the dead so that I will live with you forever. That's the only thing that will save us. That's the only thing that keeps us from being another good person in hell. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people think of us here and now, but what the Father thinks of us then and there. We want to hear, well, we will hear one of two things. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or, depart from me, I never knew you. And I hope it's our prayer that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Got a heavy church with this church in Sardis, and yet we're thankful for the, the truth. We're thankful for the encouragement that we need to strengthen what is present in our lives. Help us to know our weaknesses and to see them, to identify them, to confess the sin that might be in our lives and to rid our lives of it and to strengthen what remains. God, help our confidence never to be in anything else other than Christ for our standing with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.